0: Players gather to cast powerful spells. Some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Underworld Breach, Savine's Reclamation, Lion's Eye Diamond, and many others battling head-to-head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory.
1: The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind of Bosh and Roll on YouTube, Thurabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming Events and Moxfield.com.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 78 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, crossing over to CEDH. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for this week, available on our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com eternalglory to gain access. I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U. joined by... Brian Koble, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll.
1: And I am Brian Cook of the Epic
0: Storm. Excellent. Gentlemen, how's everyone doing tonight? Pretty good. Uh, this is usually the part where I read
2: off the new Patreon subscribers since our last episode, but there were none. I'm heartbroken. This is the first time we haven't gotten anyone new, and in the Patreon-exclusive pre-show to this episode, I admitted some filthy things I've done for Twitter clout, so you're probably going to want to check
0: that one out. All right, so today we are going to be talking about CEDH. So for our regular Legacy listeners, if you are only all Legacy all the time, this might not be the episode for you, or it's the perfect episode for you, because we're all Eternal Specialists and we all got pulled into CEDH. And that C there stands for Competitive EDH, Competitive Elder Dragon Highlander, Competitive Commander.
1: Back in my day, it was only Elder Dragon Highlander. There was no competitive, there was no commander. We just fought dragons back in 2007.
0: Okay, Boomer. I was there too. It was
2: a good time.
1: Uphills both ways in the snow, it was terrible.
0: All right, so... Um, let's actually just kind of start with a definition of what we mean when we say CEDH, because there's a little bit of confusion about it, and it's almost more of a mindset than a separate format. Um, Brian, why don't you take it away here?
2: Uh, It is literally not a different format. People who say CEDH is my favorite format uh, are misspeaking a little bit. CEDH is a high-power metagame of EDH, and it's important to... Keep that perspective that this is a version of Commander or EDH. We're going to use those terms interchangeably, I'm sure. It has the same ban list. There are sometimes arguments that CDH should have its own ban list, but then it's not EDH anymore, and then it's not CDH. The point is that you are taking the existing Commander card pool and pushing it to its limit, and everybody at the table agrees to those terms of engagement. It is a high power metagame, not a format. And the fact that it is EDH means it is is four players. It's not 1v1, which has seemed to be a common source of confusion on the internet lately. There are versions of 1v1, Singleton, Highlander, Command, du- Commander Duel. Like There are variants, but that's not what we're talking about. This is
0: a four-player game using the EDH ban list at its maximum power level. And there's really sort of a philosophy thing here. Um, getting into the weeds a little bit, a lot of times when you're playing EDH, before you kind of sit down with everyone in the pod, you're like, hey, I don't really want to play against, like, infinite turn decks. You know, this is the power level my deck is built at. Um, At a CEDH table, like, you all know that you are there to win. You are all bringing extremely high power level, extremely interactive, extremely strong decks. And while a rule zero conversation can still be useful in some cases, a lot of times, like, that CEDH name gives you the expectation of what you expect everyone else to be doing. You expect everyone else to play to win. You're not expecting spite plays, die rolling to figure out who to attack, you know. You're there to maximize your chance of walking away with the W in that game. So, today we want to kind of throw some resources your way and introduce you to the format and then kind of show some of our thoughts about the format, both as we initially explored it and our thoughts now that we have more experience doing it. Um, and I'm going to start just by handing you a link to my own website. thravenuniversity.com. has a nice CEDH tab. So we're going to talk about a lot of resources tonight. All of those things are going to be linked there. Because guess what? When I started the format uh, like two months ago or whatever it was, the community came together and we were like, yeah, here's links for everything. And I said, why aren't these in one place? And I did it myself. Well done. Well, Bryant, as our resident data guy, you know, I want to find out what a CEDH deck looks like. Where do I go to figure out what's what?
1: So there's really two different places. The first is the deck database. So it's CEDH deck database. Uh, I believe it's CEDH deck database dot com. I will look that up right now. CEDH deck list database dot com. And in there you can type in what colors you're looking for commanders and it will bring you the most competitive list that exists for what you're looking for there's usually two or three different options and the other in my opinion is the best place on the internet for deck lists. i'm talking about moxfield i use moxfield for all of my own personal decks but if you're interested you go in there i like to play a lot of Rograk silas so if you type in Rograk silas there will be hundreds of rograc silas lists for you to compare to and possibly my favorite feature of this is maybe brian koval loves to play rograc silas too I can take my decklist link and compare it to Brian's and it will spit out the difference. So that way you can level up your gameplay that way. So I think Moxfield is super valuable. I spent hours on there just looking at decklists and comparing and finding really sweet cards in other decklists. So definitely shout out to those two resources.
0: So I I do want to caution people as they are exploring Moxfield. Um, In the CEDH community, there is a pretty big tendency for decks to have cute names, and especially for primers to have cute names. And I'm going to give you an example with one of the decks that I played. My Elvish Romance slash Welcome to the Green Parade. That is a name that gives you zero information about what is actually in the deck list. So just, like, be prepared that you are probably going to deal with a lot of that. Almost all of the deck lists that I have gotten sent by people have nonsense names, and I say that as a legacy player who regularly has nonsense named decks on their channel that i try to describe simply with like clear words and card names wink wink nudge nudge cedh community like help help out the new players make it easier for them i beg you
2: yeah we talked about that in our mailbag episode uh someone asked about our favorite legacy deck names throughout history and we were basically kind of unanimously like you know fuck that (laughs) that shit sucks lots of great resources out there you might take some clicking around to find them but if you need some explanation, you can go into the community spaces where, like, Twitter, CEDH Twitter, is super active. Uh, some of – all of the, the biggest content creators, like uh, Playing With Power and Rebel and Hermit Druid and the Sculpty Boys, it's just all – I'm going to miss people. Please don't be offended. I can't name every CEDH Twitter. You will very quickly see them interacting with each other, and you just follow them all, and you'll get their conversations. They'll respond to your conversations because they are very welcoming and – if you're just like, what is Dab Farm? Someone will explain that to you. That's a great question, by the way. Uh, what is Dab Farm?
0: Look, I've been playing this format somewhat casually for two months now. I still don't know what Blue Farm is. The words appear everywhere. No idea. I know it's some sort of ad nauseum deck. That's all I know.
2: My understanding, and this is a uh, a passing understanding, is that somebody thought that uh, Thrasios and Timna are farmers, like in their art, that's like kind of what they're doing. And those are two of the most popular generically good draw cards commanders in the format. So these decks based on commanders that draw cards are called farmers and farm decks and etc. CH Twitter, feel free to go nuts, but I think we're in the ballpark there. But that's what we're talking about. And there is a rich history of people who all know each other and like sharing inside jokes is a really great way to build existing friendships. It's a tough way to bring in new friends. So just balancing the history of the format and what that means to everyone with, you know, making it remotely approachable for outsiders, but the people on Twitter will be happy to explain it to you.
0: As far as accessibility goes, like while I don't like a lot of the deck naming conventions of CEDH, I will say a absolutely stunning, number of deck lists have active discords, active communities, and or a primer on Moxfield that makes getting into a specific deck list, or at least having a starting point for it, like super, super accessible. Um, a lot of times like using legacy as a parallel, like if you want to get into a legacy deck, you go to like MTG Top 8 or whatever, you grab your deck list and like you just start playing it. If you're lucky you can find a Discord with C E D H I feel like the resources are pretty easily accessible.
1: Coming from a legacy perspective, I wanted to get into CDH. Some of my friends were playing. Where do you go for deck lists? My 60 card player brain said there's no better place than MTG Goldfish. I go there literally every single day for posting my own deck list, looking at other people's deck lists. So I went there and I was looking over what the best decks in the format were. And I was talking to some of these people and they're like, oh, no, that's not a real CDH deck. Like it's it's high power level or whatever, but it's not really the ballpark that you're looking for. And I was like, oh. They're like, yeah, Goldfish is really good for 60 card formats, but the commander stuff is lacking. Not it's not a big diss on Goldfish. I love you, Goldfish. Please don't take offense, but there's other resources that might be more equipped for what you're looking for out of this high power level commander format. And another really good resource is EDH rec. I look at EDH rec a lot to see what people are playing mostly. I don't really go there for deck lists. But if you need to see what are the 10 best mana rocks, because maybe you have eight and you are thinking maybe I want another piece of my deck, you go there. And they have it all just listed. You can look at, oh, hey, this is the ninth most popular. Maybe you should consider this. So I think it's a really good resource for finding those missing pieces in your deck.
0: Yeah, that that site is fire. Um, I use that a lot for casual EDH.
2: Yeah, it is uh, powerful and dangerous. It's powerful in the sense that I learned about the existence of many cards for the first time by going to EDH rec and just... The commander I wanted to build for, it will show you like an aggregate deck list as well as the most popular hundred plus cards and like what percentage of that commander each card is in, which is great for like, that's literally the first time I saw Dockside Extortionist was I was building a casual commander deck from nothing and that card popped up and I was like, oh, what does this do? It turns out, yeah, that's a pretty big deal in this format. And it's dangerous because if you are building for casual It pulls you towards, like, the mean rather than letting you express yourself. And you have to sort of, like, once you see the hundred best cards that could be in your commander, it's hard to, like, unless you're building to a theme or, like, going Vorthos or whatever, it's hard to just say, like, I'm going to play a worse card than this out of spite. But since we're talking about CEDH, which is just the best cards, it's a great resource to
0: do that with. And speaking of of disc, uh, sorry. And speaking of like good cards and community and such, discord is a fantastic way to talk with some people that have already played the commander that you're going to play. I know Bryant has really made some good friends and kind of like uh, has a small little community that he very regularly plays CEDH with.
1: Yeah, for sure. I made good friends with a couple of the guys from Playing With Power, but also the miscast with Mikey Hollihan and Drake Sasser, I play with them almost daily. So real big fan of those people. Yeah, met them all through Discord, CEDH communities.
0: In terms of playing online, and Discord is a great way to find games if you want to play over webcam. Just be aware that every community is not necessarily going to be a good fit for you, and it might take you a little while to find that group of people that you regularly want to play with who are all on exactly the same page as you. Um, So just kind of keep that in mind. I know a lot of people who bounce back and forth between a couple of different communities before they finally find a found a place that was like, yes, this is this is the group of people I want to play with.
2: Right. That's really important when like coming from a tournament mindset where the only magic I was interested in playing was tournament magic to casual EDH and then swerving it up into CEDH. I still have casual EDH, by the way, but uh, CEDH is still a casual format. If you're used to tournament rules and tournament policy and the structure of a tournament, you're still going to have an adjustment period playing even at the highest power, spikiest CEDH table. There, there are big differences still.
1: I would agree with that. Like missed triggers, I think is the most obvious example somebody will be like oh i missed this fish trigger four spells ago and they in cdh you can't call a judge and be like no they've missed that for example
2: i i think like i mean finding the play group that's like we're testing right now we're on a discord we're working on our decks like let's play like we played perfectly versus the group that's like no we like this is the payout like are you grinding looking for a chance to win a tournament someday or are you or is this the 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 show are you at the show right now in the discord like what is your end game and different communities are going to feel differently about that
0: this is difficult to say because of the words that are going to be in this sentence but you can definitely play c-e-d-h casually and kind of what i mean by this is if tournament success is your only, like, the only thing that you care about in regards to CEDH, there's probably only a small pool of decks that are truly viable. And yet when you look at, like, the CEDH decklist database, database, there's absolutely a huge, huge list of commanders and deck lists for them. But there's going to be a power level disparity between some of those decks, and it's very obvious sometimes.
1: I like to compare this to in Legacy, for example, you have Is It Delver, a deck with Merktide Regent, Leisure Shredder, Delver Secrets, a bunch of bananas cards. In the same format, and I'm just making a joke here, we have Nickfit. And they're both legacy decks, but they're pretty varying levels of power. Not that Nickfit is terrible, it's just not even in the same realm as Is it
0: Delver. Yeah. So just like be aware that there's still some expression in deck building in C E D H, and there are definitely still some. I want to try this and see where it goes vibes to the format. So like the first deck that I picked up for example was Marwyn and after, you know, 20 games with that deck I went like this isn't a like tournament viable deck list. I need to move on to testing something else. And that deck was super fun to play and it is absolutely a CEDH deck list, but you know, coming from like the the like I'm trying to win every game that I play mindset that I'm I'm so often in it just wasn't the deck list for me. Like that's, that's not what I was trying to get out of the format.
2: Right. And I have been working on Rafine since streets of new Capenna came out and Rafine is not a top tier CEDH commander. And uh, I just like the play pattern and it gives me a chance to do something unique. And you, if you look on my mox field, you'll find three or four different, like fundamentally different builds of Rafine as things evolved over time. Because like when you're building a deck, you have to consider what the commander does, because the commander is a huge resource in any commander format that Legacy doesn't get. And like Rafine, my first build was just a Turbo Thassa's Oracle ad nauseum thing, modeled heavily after Moderately Anonymous. Dan, we love Dan on this podcast. Yeah. It. I realize that doesn't make sense because I'm just trying to do something with a three-color commander. That you could do with a four-color set of Commanders between Timna Krom or uh, Timna Thrasios or uh, Thrasios, like, whatever, like, Rog Silas does that faster and better in a different set of three colors, like, why shove something into Esper that doesn't belong there with a Commander that doesn't really work with it? So I eventually, like, drag the deck into, like, Reanimator, because Rafine discards cards naturally. And then I realized that reanimator is not that strong. And then I dragged it into stacks because Rafine's really good at attacking for damage and hate bears and locking people out and like making the game take longer while building incidental graveyard advantage feeds Rafine specifically. So the tuning and the testing and like making something make sense is. A lot of fun and it's a lot of work. And uh, at the end of the road, you might realize this just isn't good. I forget where this point started. I think Phil was talking about finding your deck or your commander that's for you. But I've had a lot of fun brewing something that I have not really seen elsewhere in the format.
1: The finessing aspect of the format, I love a lot. I love fine-tuning something to be a well-oiled machine, even in other formats. So once I found a deck in that I spent a lot of time making sure that every card choice had a lot of meaning and purpose and all of that good stuff. So I feel you, Brian.
0: Absolutely. And, and speaking of the tuning, when you start getting involved with the Discord communities, you might find that if you come to the table with different ideas, people aren't necessarily going to always agree with what you have to say or even take what you have to say seriously. Um, When you come to a format with a new set of ideas, there's kind of two things going on. Like, you're bringing different perspectives and experiences, which is really good, and also at the same time, like, you don't necessarily have the background knowledge and heuristics and such that other people who have been playing the format for longer have. And so sometimes you might find yourselves butting heads... Um, with members of the community as you are first kind of getting into it. Um, and this is something that Bryant went through a ton um, in messing around with Rog Silas.
1: That's just my personality, Phil. Also, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I like to question things, and it's nothing personal. I just really like to know the ins and outs of things. and I, I just ask a lot of questions, so sometimes that can get under people's skin because I- I'm really genuinely interested in knowing why each card choice makes sense. And... Yeah, it's not an, a personal attack on you or your ducklist or anything like that. I'm just genuinely really interested.
2: Matt Sperling had a great statement about that. Um, he is a lawyer as his day job and defending an argument is something that is important to that way, way brains work. And he has said flatly that I disagree leads to better conversations than I agree. And I don't think he means he's going to play devil's advocate just to cause chaos, but like, if you disagree, get into it. It doesn't have to be adversarial. Just like, if you think this, here is my position. Why I think this. Defend your position, and like, let's let's reach synthesis about this. Like that that's the the method. Like thesis, antithesis, synthesis. When we talk through it, or we can just like be mad at each other. So. Uh, take i disagree as a learning opportunity for everyone involved and learn
0: yeah every, every time that like someone looks at spoilers and just says like cards bad cards unplayable and gives it no further thought like no one gains anything right it's the person who goes well but what about and starts like delving into the niche areas or thinking about interactions that people weren't normally thinking about and that's that's where you get the growth that's where you get the person who figures out like oh this is actually a combo with another card, right?
1: So, question for you two: How often are you playing Cedh?
0: I'm I'm currently in content creator mode, so I play Cedh as I am invited to streams. Uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, listeners. Very happy to play, and I think that goes for a lot of us here. Usually, I'm I'm doing one Cedh stream a week right now, which usually means two, sometimes three games a week. Um, I'm currently playing Heliod Ballista. Um, as my decklist, and I was playing Marwin previously, but I didn't think Marwin was competitive. I'm trying out Heliod, and if I don't think that's actually competitive, I'll just play some blue soup card.
2: Uh, I'm on the same kind of grind as Phil, where I accept most invites that are sent my way. Uh, I play on uh, Mental Misplay and Modanon pretty regularly. Uh, I played with Rebel once. I don't know if that ended up being a video or if that was just for fun, but we got a few games in. I also play with Some of my friends, we've been working on decks together. There was a run where I somehow had a bunch of nights free every week and I was actually showing up to the local commander stores and we had enough CEDH players to fire off a few games at the end of the night when the store was like, hey, we're closing in 30 and we wanted to start a game that would probably end in that fast. The Bosch and Roll Discord is also pretty great. Like we've had some organized CEDH nights and then sometimes I'll just fire in like anyone want to get some games and usually three people are down.
1: I've been playing an absolute ton. I've been playing, I think, and this is going to sound high, but I think it's actually a conservative estimate, about 20 plus games a week. Uh, I have a small Discord, as I've we've discussed, but it's a couple of the Playing With Power guys, the Miscast, some Epic Storm guys, and a few others where, for example, this morning at 11 a.m., they were like, looking for a game, let's fire a pod at lunch. Uh, so like, there's always games going. So I end up just playing a ton, like I'll finish recording a video for the night. I'll hop into an EDH game and then do the YouTube stuff when it's not my turn. Like, I'm just playing CDH all the time at the moment. It's a blast. I'm really, really loving the format.
0: For our new listeners, Bryant doesn't sleep. We suspect he might be a robot. Accurate. That is my best read on the situation as well. All right. um, I'm going to go ahead and take this opportunity to say that this episode is officially sponsored by Moxfield.com, and we've already kind of sung their praises a little bit. In case you don't know what they are, they are a decklist website with great, great features, the ability to link primers to your decklist. So if you have a sideboarding guide or you want to share some thoughts with your decklist, it is fantastic. They have the ability to specifically track what cards you own. You can change the versions of the card, and there's a ton more functionality there. Uh, this is not just a commander website. This is a generic uh, decklist web- decklist hosting website, and I highly encourage you to check them out. I use this for tracking all of my own personal EDH lists.
2: Me too. I have all my EDH decks on here, all those different versions of Rafine that I mentioned. You can see all the-, the shells and where I left them. I have Decks that I keep together for 60-card formats as well, like my pauper decks are on there, Legacy Elves, uh, Legacy Bant, one of my my big decks that I'm likely to return to. My most up-to-date version of Delver is there, and I really love how You can pick the version of cards specifically. Phil mentioned it. And then it also prices out your cards. So it's also kind of a collection tracker. There's also a social media component. Like you can follow deck builders and comment on their decks as well, which is kind of fun. I didn't realize that when I built my first Moxfield thing. And then it was like, you have a new follower. I was like, oh, we're doing that too. There's just so much going on on this website and
0: it's awesome. All right, so now we're going to turn to our second section here where we kind of talk about some of our initial thoughts on the format. Uh, And this is very much to the legacy players that are listening who are like, okay, well, what is there to like about this format? What is this format?
2: Uh, Turns are dynamic, which is something that it's just an adjustment from playing two-player magic. There's four people at the table. It is not unusual for all four players to be involved in a stack. Like, when, when the sparks start to fly, they fly, and even if their cards aren't involved, their thoughts will be. Like, it is very much a communal experience, because if somebody triggers their Thassa's oracle, all three other players lose. So if there's, like, like it's pretty normal where I'll be like, alright, I got this dispel, Where what's the correct point to fire it off? And uh, can you all help me, because I'm done after, like, this is all I got, like, what do you have? And... That becomes part of the game and a lot happens very quickly and there aren't very many turns in the game, but a lot of things occur, which is very different than than 60 card two player formats.
1: It's one of my favorite aspects of the format, actually. Like, I love really compact magic, so it's definitely what I'm looking for. Like Brian mentioned, somebody will play a turn one Mystic Remora, also known as Fish. There might be a mental misstep, and then somebody else plays a Fierce Guardianship. And before you know it, four spells have been played on the first turn, and the second player hasn't even gone yet. Like, it's just really, really fun.
0: Okay, I want to talk about format speed, though, because a a lot of times I think when people hear CEDH, they think it's like a turn two format. That's not really true. Now, turn two wins, they, they can happen. But I think that's very much in the way that, like, in Legacy, turn one Grizzlebrand can happen and the game can effectively end. Or sometimes a Storm deck or another combo deck can kill you on turn one. But that's not really what the format is about, right? In my experience, it's really like a turn five or six format, where a lot of times roughly two or three kill attempts have been made, And then enough resources are exhausted that someone actually goes for the win and is successful.
1: My experiences haven't quite been the same. That said, it's another great thing about the format is like your play experiences might just be completely different from mine because there are so many different ways that you can play it.
2: Yeah, uh, there are decks and tables where my first ever time I was on Mental Misplay, Alan, the host of Misplay, loves Golgari. He has two different Golgari decks and Black Green in the command zone, they're not here for a long time. They're here for a good time. Uh, there's not gonna be a whole lot going on there. That's gonna be an adnos deck, that's gonna be a chain of smog deck. Like Alan even plays like an Aloran that he is sure is bad, but just wants every two-card combo in existence in his Golgari piles. Someone else at the table was Jund. Like that there's no blue there. There's no more cards coming. We're going fast. And that was my first exposure, and I was playing a uh Jeskai kind of delver-esque uh, Ishai, Jessica, our commander partners. Uh, Ishai is blue, white, and Jessica's red. And it's sort of a stick a threat and protect it, Delver's secrets kind of strategy. And I was just getting like bricked by like Veil of Summer, fast mana, fast mana, fast mana, Underworld Breach, you're dead. I was like, oh, all right, that's what this format's like. But since then, I've played a lot more, and a lot of the decks don't do that, but some do. And some of them, very explicitly try to stop that from happening like phil mentioned being white heliod i talked about rafine's evolution into a stacks deck like i have something like a dozen ways to stop players from casting more than one spell in a turn in my deck like brian's mad at me over there he just walked away from the table but it's it feels like legacy it truly does like the games don't feel like legacy but the way the format moves and the way that games unfold and The way that, you know, you can turn one people, but the more linear you get, the more exposed to hate you are. Like, all of those things translate directly from Legacy.
0: Yeah, this is a great time for me to mention. This was on stream, on mod's stream, against three very competent opponents with relatively strong decks. My last CEDH game was two hours. I think a little over two hours. Because I stopped literally everyone at the table from doing anything. And Weathered Runestone just... Absolutely made everyone crap themselves somehow. It was very weird. Like
2: you also get those games in Legacy. Like recently at a local event, I was on Delver and I got paired against Oops All Spells. It was game three. We both knew what we were doing. I kept a hand with two Force of Wills and just Wasteland as a land. I didn't hit my land drop till turn nine or ten. I Force of Willed two attempts from the Oops player and he was back up to seven cards in hand by the time I hit a land and did anything we were talking about those dynamic stacks with multiple people involved. Sometimes just spells are flying first flying the claws are out. And then when the dust settles, everyone's just sort of like, okay, uh, land go. <laughs> uh, and that's where having a commander that can recoup in those situations. Cause your commander is always accessible to you. If you can cast it like that's sort of, you can build a commander who's here to facilitate turn one, two wins, or you can have a commander that's there to regrow, in the mid game. And it's just really exciting deck building and and play patterns.
0: Yeah, speaking of play patterns, I've found it super interesting um in terms of like turn order in a four player game when you go in a pod is super interesting. So for example, if I'm playing Heliod stacks and I am randomly chosen to go first like Good luck, everyone else. The game is going to be super warped. On the other hand, if I'm playing a tribal elf deck and there is a Jeska deck at the table where there is a mobile recurrable board wipe in the command zone, I'm going to have a really bad time.
2: Been my most recent level up is realizing how much turn order really does matter. And obviously it matters, and like being on the draw in Legacy is usually worse than being on the play. You could be on the draw, draw, draw. Like three people could go before you, which is not something that you can even experience in a two player game because it doesn't exist. What I've ranked as a competitive, keepable hand changes entirely based on turn order. It's a lot like uh, your your chip position in poker, like big blind, little blind, like see who's checking, who's raising, whatever, before you have to make an action. I played three games on modern on stream. That was the last stream I was on. And I mulligan to five, I think, in game three, a hand that I would have kept seven on in the first two games because I I was just learning that quickly in real time about how essential turn order is.
1: One thing that I think is also pretty interesting about the format is when you have similar decks at a table. So for example, I've played a lot of double blue farm, which is Timnacrom versus double Rograck Silas or Rograck Silas and another turbo deck uh, like, oh, I'm blanking on the name now, the Dragon. Corvold, Corvold. So those are two back-to-back turbo decks. I think the turbo deck that is actually seated behind the other one is more favored than the first seated turbo deck because they're more most likely to go for it first. They'll be stopped by one of the control decks at the table, being Blue Farm, uh, the Timnacrom deck. So that means that the next player down is more likely to be able to win. So there's some games where I'm like, okay, well, I might be the second Turbo player at the table, but I'm seated third. I think this actually puts me in a better position than seat two, as long as I can work with the other players to stop that player from winning. So I, there is this like really interesting dynamic to the table.
0: And I think that's a good time to just say, like, this is a multiplayer format, and that is a feature of the format. That is not a bug. The politics matter. Talking with other players matter. Like don't ignore that portion of the format and just sit there quietly shuffling your cards back and forth in your hand you're you're not going to get the most out of the format and you're probably not going to win nearly as much either if you don't engage in some politics
2: right and and that becomes like an additional layer to the game because like if i'm in in third position and the person in first position is doing something and two is like hey can you counter that i'm gonna be like you have priority there is a bit of like sniffing out like Like if I have my Flusterstorm and I'm ready to combo on my turn in third position, but one's going for it now, I'd rather have that Flusterstorm to save myself on turn three and push my combo through than protect this win now. And then two gets a chance to operate. So I'm going to do what I can to try to coax the counterspell out of two or four uh, rather than spend my own card, which again is not a dynamic in two player magic. All right.
0: um, And like on the note of multiplayer stuff, The fact that this format is multiplayer totally changes your evaluation of some cards. So let's use Esper Sentinel. Esper Sentinel is barely a legacy playable card. Like, it's too embarrassing to see play in Death and Taxes. It occasionally sees play in some of these mono-white artifact decks, like the Hammer Time deck, for example. But it's pretty avoidable. Now, all of a sudden, when... Asper Sentinel has a chance to trigger off of three other players instead of one other players, that card has leveled up a lot. And the same is true for things like Opposition Agent. Opposition Agent versus one po- opponent who maybe will search? Eh, kind of whatever. Versus an entire table, holy cow, now that card's really good and it's going to constantly be on people's minds. So a lot of cards that are unplayable or weak in other formats, like say a Rhystic Study, or a Mystic Remora, or something, now all of a sudden are super scary.
2: And, like, we talked about keeping hands and, like, turn order. I am more likely to keep a hand that has turn one Ristic Study than, like, turn one go for my combo at a a three-player table, or a four-player table. That's just, like, the way things unfold. Ristic Study is, like, one of the more grown inducing things that a table can play against, because in 1v1, you could just, like, play off-curve, and never give them an extra card and it's pretty reasonable vintage play patterns mystic remora gets played in some metagames where you're just like all right i'll just wait until they stop putting mana into it but two other players are advancing their board states while you're not casting spells and it it gets really tricky
1: i love when you're at a table and so seat one will play mystic remora seat two says i am not going to feed the fish seat three says i'm not going to feed the fish and seat four is like sorry guys, and then plays their entire hand right into it. So there's this element that sometimes... One person at the table isn't going to agree to the uh, quote unquote gentleman's agreement or where, you know, two of you want to achieve the same thing. But C4 just decides, no, I'm going to do my thing and try to win because there's a good chance that maybe the player with Mystic Remora doesn't actually have that force of will, force of negation, mimer, trap, whatever.
2: Yeah, we had a really good conversation about that one time when I was on Mental Misplay. Uh, Jim from the Spike Feeders was also on there. He's on the Commander Advisory Committee as well. There was some version of fish or Rhystic Study or whatever in play. And from a more casual table perspective, he was like, guys, what are we doing? Are we playing into this thing or are we going to agree to play around it? And my response was, do you think you can win? Like, if you think you can punch through this Mystic Remora, then, you know, that's what we're here to do. We're at a more casual table. It may be like we're all going to agree to play off curve for the next four or five turns and just not give them any cards or until someone has a disenchant or whatever. And we'll work together on this. But like if you can silence first, let them draw one card, your silence resolves and then go for the win. Get after it.
0: Yeah. And like different decks are very have varying degrees of success at playing around a a, an effect of that nature so for example when i'm playing marwin if i am not dumping my hand and elves onto the table in preparation for a future combo turn like there's no way that i win so like that deck is not super good at playing around that effect if i still want to go for the win whereas my opponent playing like a demonic consultation thas's oracle deck is like yeah i just have both those cards chilling in my hand i can win for three mana in a way that i can't
2: just one more point on how cards look and feel like i mentioned silence i trust a silence in this format way more than i trust a fluster storm uh, when i'm going for something and even on defense just being able to silence someone who's mid combo or silence shutting down the whole table rather than fluster storm maybe fighting through one piece of interaction one of my earliest experiences in the format was uh, with that ishai jessica deck i had ishai in play it was probably like a six six or seven seven and my hand was five counter spells and all my mana was untapped. And I was just attacking with this five points of commander damage with five counter spells. And my legacy brain was like, this one's over. I think I lost like one and a half turn cycles later because three people punching through your five counter spells and you have to deal 21 commander damage to each of them rather than just 20 damage to one person. It's, it's a totally different calculus and. My hand was empty and I was falling behind to the other players at the table before I knew what was happening. And I, my head was spinning. I was like, oh, wow, this does not translate cleanly.
0: And also just stating the obvious here, um, in case it's not clear, by the way, we're like very highly talking about this format. Like the format's just fun to play. Like this has been a really excellent thing to explore. And unlike, a, uh, I'm saying this this portion specifically to our legacy viewers here, you will recognize The vast majority of the cards in this format, if you are a legacy or vintage player, and this is very different from the casual EDH perspective, like when I am on a casual EDH stream, like I have scryfall up all the time, just in case like the, the the magical camera click a button doesn't work and can't tell me what a card does in a CEDH game. I only look up a couple of cards each game, like I just know what's going on there. And it's very accessible if you know the legacy card pool pretty well.
2: Yep. And if you have a legacy collection, you can probably build a CEDH deck. You're probably like a demonic consultation and a commander away because most of these cards are just the dual lands, the lion's eye diamond, the, the mox opals, etc. that kind of stuff.
1: Brian, Phil, did you know that Eminence Gaming is hosting a Punt City 4k at the end of this month in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania?
2: I did know that. L- listen, I did. And that thing, sold out so fast people are so excited about it but they still have more events coming up and side events right like, I, I was going to be there and tickets were gone and I was like waiting for them.
1: Well, they're still going to have pickup CDH pods. They're going to have drafts and even a Popper side event on Sunday. So, definitely go check that out. And next year in 2023, they're hosting four more major events just like Punt City.
2: Wow, I might have to get out there for Popper. I didn't know that was on the, the docket until now. Uh, I may or may not have recently made a ridiculous investment in foils for Popper.
0: I can absolutely respect that. And, like, I am 100% on board with supporting any independent tournament organizers right now. Some other major tournament series have just faltered a little bit, is all I'm saying. Um, So I'm really excited to see what these folks do. Moving on to Section 3 here. Um, Now we're going to kind of take a critical view of the format. You know, we've kind of done the what is it, what do we like about it, what are our initial... Um, impressions, and now we're going to kind of ask some questions about the format, talk about some of the data the format has to offer, and get a little bit into the nitty-gritty and... Bryant, as our data guy here, I think I'm going to go ahead and let you start this section off.
1: Sure. So one of the things about CDH is while there are events that happen, there's not a whole lot of them. Or there's webcam results, and there's some things that can go wrong with webcam. Maybe somebody isn't always playing truthfully. Sometimes things happen. So people don't know what data to trust. Can you trust a webcam tournament where maybe someone was disqualified for you know not playing honestly? Or what are the values of all these events? So like, do you weigh events that have 70 people as much as one that may, might have had 200, that sort of thing? So there are there is data for the format, but there's a lot of skepticism on how you judge it, how you value it, that sort of thing. And honestly, it's not that different from Legacy, if I'm being completely transparent with everyone here. So Legacy, you have larger challenges, you have smaller challenges. Is the data equal? So this is something people in the format go back and forth with quite a bit. And because of this, most players turn to content creators much like the three of us or people that have their deck list in the deck database like i when i got into cdh there was a person that i looked to specifically that i found through the database their handle is natux they were the rog silas i mean they still are the rog silas expert i bothered them a ton through discord i was like hey what do you think of this what do you think of this what do you think of this i'm sure i drove them up a wall but these are the people that others look to for advice or opinions on the format so data isn't always trustworthy but the people are
0: what is what does it take to top eight a cedh tournament because this is this is like a four-player game right so like what's my what's my win percent to to top eight you know what record do i need
1: that's a really good question phil and i think that really varies depending on the number of rounds from my understanding is a lot of these events are five rounds sometimes six cut to two top tables or even one table, depending on the number of players, because sometimes there's only 32 people and you would only have a top four pod. So it really depends on the number of players from what I've read. One thing
2: that is still growing in this space is how to run tournaments. And a lot of tournaments have been run. People have their their thoughts on it. But I spent a lot of time, probably close to seven hours total, in a series of meetings with cedh tournament organizers that which bridges cedh into tedh the t being for tournament and the fact that cedh is still a casual format crashes hard into tedh uh, a lot of things that were presented to me as just like shocking and scandalous that somebody might consider doing i was like i would do that 100 of the time and not feel bad about it and it's not even like Because I'm a ruthless spike, but just to maximize my chance of winning the tournament. In a casual pickup game of CEDH, if somebody's going for the win and I cast Force of Negation and I don't have five mana in play to pay for the force when we get to my turn.
0: Pact of Negation. Pact.
2: Yeah, yeah. Pact of Negation. Sorry. Pact of Negation. There there could be some scandal there of like, this is a spite play. You're dead anyway. You're just throwing this out here. I demand that you show me your hand, show me that you have a ritual or a spirit guide or some way to pay for that with that generates mana at instant speed or show me the angel's grace, like show me that this isn't a spite play. And my response to that is, fuck you, buddy. Uh, we'll figure that out when we get to my upkeep. Uh, do you want to counter my spell or not? Because maybe I am throwing pact of negation out there knowing you have a piece of counter magic and then I don't have to pay for my pact. If it gets countered, then I'll counterspell your th- original thing. Like Maybe that's what I'm doing. There's layers that like breach of the casual code of conduct that, as a tournament player, I would fire off every single time. There is some growth there as CEDH moves towards TEDH. The structure of tournaments and exactly what policy documents are going to be followed. Uh, there is actually a tournament EDH policy document that was written by one of the tournament organizers in the space. And it was so convincing that Toby Elliott reached out to them and was like, hey, make sure you say at the top, this is not a Watsi document, uh, because That's it looked exactly like, when, well, yes, they, they really did nail it. But that is still a growth area in the space.
1: So a few moments ago, I was talking about content creators and people from the DEC database. Well, I've watched a lot of CDH content, you know, getting into the format over the last handful of months. So I have a couple of thoughts that I'd like to share with you two right now. A lot of content is voiceover and not player voice. So if the three of us in one lucky guest, let's say on, because we love Dan's content, we're playing together, usually with a lot of streams or YouTube content, you don't hear us talking through play. So if I say I'm going to counter Brian's Dockside Extortionist, that wouldn't come through. Instead, there's typically a narration over it saying, Brian here will counter Brian Koval's Dockside Extortionist. So there that's not something that happens a lot and to me as a legacy player a 60 card player i was like oh that's odd but i think the biggest thing is when i first got into the format i was like you know what? i'm going to make my own cdh video there's almost no thought process or explanation based gameplay so you don't see my hand and you're not experiencing the journey or thought process with me instead you have an overhead view of four different people and you're sort of just seeing the cards being played, you don't really get, you know, the in-depth gameplay or the knowledge of why they made that play. And I thought that was really different coming from, you know, what we do.
2: Yeah, I realized that too, the first time I recorded my own EDH content, because I usually am just talking into the mic into my own brain space and telling you what I'm thinking. And if I were to do that in an EDH game, the other three players would know the two things that I'm waffling between because they'd hear me saying it. I'm just talking to myself like a maniac over here. And if I try to toggle my mic back and forth, where I'm like live on spell table versus narrating, then they all have to wait for me recording my content to make a play, which is extra annoying, because EDH games already get slow and bogged down in decision making. I don't know exactly what the format would have to look like, the content format, where you get that like table talk and the inside the brain activity like you'd have to voice over what you were thinking later and splice that into just a recording of the table talk i don't know what that would flow like it it sounds rough and you would need all of the players involved to say what you were actually thinking or just like if if you take like the pov of one player i guess you don't it's just it is you do either get that like no thought process here we all are or you get the voiceover later that only has one point of view
0: I also do want to shout out the CEDH community who are doing edited content for YouTube. That takes forever, and you all are doing fantastic work. So, like, we as these tournament grinders who are, like, all making YouTube money by, like, talking through all of our lines. Like, of course, we're looking for that specific sort of content. Like, you're doing great what you are doing in bringing a lot of great videos to uh, the community. So, please please don't take this as a slight this was just something that was very surprising to all of us when we started looking at CEDH content. For sure. Yeah, the,
2: these videos are great. The the editing quality and, like, when a card is played, the card pops up where you can read it. And they make no assumptions that you know what Timna the Weaver does. Because I certainly didn't when I wa- pro- approached the format. I still reread that card every time I draw it. I'm like, make sure I know what I'm doing. But, uh, yeah, uh, the edited content is great. It just... If you want to be in the head of Bryant Cook as he pilots Rog Silas through a table, that content would be very challenging to to make. You would have to just see how the table plays around Bryant playing those cards.
1: Exactly. and So Phil mentioned earlier that I joined a bunch of discords. I spoke with some people. And one thing that I experienced with talking with other CDH content creators was a lot of the people that watch YouTube or Twitch. Sometimes they get bored of watching Thassa's Oracle Demonic Consultation. So they'll create more creative CDH brews that maybe win with Aetherflux Reservoir or some other really sweet card. So they end up building their decks to not include things like Thassa's Oracle Consult, even though they could. And you sort of have to ask yourself, am I doing this for the content or am I doing this to make the best deck possible or to win? And it creates this content creator struggle with... What, what do I want to be known for? What am I trying to achieve here? And it's a tough line to walk because if your audience isn't interested in watching something, are you staying true to yourself? Or are you staying true to your content? What's the real goal?
2: Yeah, that is always a struggle. I released a 5.0 with Modern Is It Murktide on my channel today as of the time of recording. It's 10 out of 10 of my recent releases. It's not doing well. Like, it's, it's one of the best decks in the format, piloted to an undefeated record. I think a lot of cool things were done in that league, but, you know, how many times can you watch Is It Murktide just run over a
0: modern league? Yeah, this is something that I struggled with for a long time. For, for the outside listeners, I'm known very specifically for the Death and Taxes archetype in Legacy, and now I almost never play that deck because it's not something that my audience very specifically wants, and it doesn't have a wide appeal so I very much understand the struggle of like competitive best deck list versus like, ooh this is the thing my viewers actually want. This is the thing that people are going to click on on the YouTube thumbnail.
1: Another thing that I was asked a lot, which I wasn't really expecting to answer this question as often as I did was, are you building your deck for your personal play group? or Are you building it for an open field? And at first, my response was like, well, what does an open field look like? And very few people actually had result or a response to that. Because, I mean, there's nothing like Goldfish just t- uh, calculating the top 10 most played decks at any given time, right? Like, that doesn't really exist for CDH. So then it became like, well, are you building it for the same six people you normally face? And I, to me, that was always sort of weird because I think there's this impression that you should be doing that. But I, for, I mean, I only cut it last week, but I was playing March of Swirling Mist in my deck for the last five months, even though... I'd only face Winota, maybe one in every 10 games. It's just like not a deck that I face that often. And I only cut it because I found this really nice level up with Snap with effects like City of Traders and Ancient Tomb. I'm still playing a removal spell, but I've just switched it. And people thought that maybe my deck was a little bit removal-like, but as a combo deck, I don't want that. So am I building it because my play group is mostly combo decks? No, but it seems that way to other people, if that makes sense.
0: So for those of you legacy players out here, you've probably heard the, well, paper magic is different than magic online, um, argument or discord tons and tons of times. Right. And I think this is a similar style of argument slash discussion here. And my sample size is small, but in talking to other CEDH experts, I've gotten the feeling that even like sometimes individual discord servers have their own metagames and tastes. I think it was like the Spike Feeders Discord tended to have like more Stacks players than normal, for example. So like if I'm going to go play on that stream, like do I want to play something that's bad against Stacks? Uh Maybe not. There are those sorts of considerations to think about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like when I was playing at the local stores, the live play for those couple weeks, uh, one of the guys had Rurikthar. That was the only deck he had. I'm not going to bring Storm. I'm going to pack an extra removal spell or two for the Rurikthar. Like, these are easy decisions to make if you are playing with the same group of four-ish people. What does an open field look like? And again, that's that's just metagaming. That's Magic the Gathering. That's healthy breathing tournament magic. Am I going to play four submerges in my Delver deck because I'm specifically concerned about green-white depths? Or am I going to play one submerge and two meltdowns and respect eight cast as well even though my locals don't play it but these people over in ohio might like this is just metagaming and this comes up all the time and the question of are you building for an open field or for your friend group doesn't really matter that much because you can change those cards if you're going to go somewhere else or if you expect something different
1: i'd like to make a small caveat here brian you should always be playing storm and or thar always be playing storm period End of message.
2: Uh, okay, um, let's put a Rurik Thar into play and see how much fun Brian has. It's <laughs> moving forward. The gauntlet's been dropped.
1: So, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but asking people questions about their card choices, I heard a lot, it's just good, you should play it. That's not really a rationale for why I should be playing any given card. So, if I ask Brian that, Brian is really good at adequately saying, hey, I'm playing this because of these considerations in my deck. Brian is very good at just explaining things in general. I'm much better you know, podcaster talker, whatever you want to say, Brian is great. So Brian can do that, but that wasn't always the experience that I had. And something Brian is really good at doing is giving context of why in his decisions. So as I mentioned earlier, Asking someone a question about a card choice isn't an attack on them as a person. Like, Brian isn't married to any given card in Rafine. He has seven different lists, ranging from ad nauseum to prison. It's not an attack at your deck. Rafine's great. Uh, it's not Legacy versus Seed Each, which was a big Twitter argument a couple weeks ago. It has nothing to do with format versus format. And uh, none of its power moves. It's not like a display of dominance. It's just, hey, let's talk about making these decks better.
2: Yeah, another thing that came up in a Twitter conversation recently. I might have been the same one, actually. It is the fact that uh, smart people or people who know what they're talking about can explain what they're talking about. If you say a lot of like big words or like just authoritatively slam a single like point onto the board, you might not actually know as much as you think you do. Or pe- I've found that in my professional spaces, at least, uh, like my job, not professional magic spaces, the people who are... The loudest and most, uh, final about their statements know the least. Like, that's the idiot in the room. I'm not trying to call anyone idiots, but like, if a card is, is just good, play it. Why is it just good? It should be, if it is so ubiquitously obvious that this card should be in your deck, you should be able to articulate that. And same is true of any other card or any other, any other thing. That, like, leads to, uh, sometimes things change over time. Something that was true two years ago might not be true now. Modern Horizons shook up everything about legacy and modern and people, a modern expert from 2019 who hasn't looked at the format since then is not going to be the most informed person. Uh, we can we can talk make Reed Duke jokes about uh, playing Boomer Jund all the time into Modern Horizons 2 cards and uh, not doing well with it. Uh, it's not about quality of player because Reduke's obviously great. Uh, you need to adjust your opinions over time. And if someone says, like, Dressdown is all over the place now, are you st- sure you still like Doomsday? Or, like, Dressdown and Endurance both came out in Modern Horizons 2. And both of those are powerful main deckable answers to Doomsday, which was a popular combo deck at the time that Modern Horizons 2 came out. Like, you want to be able to adjust to that and you want to be able to explain why how you are respecting those cards or why you're not. And just being able to articulate those things is important, not only for other people to understand what you're doing, but for you to understand what you're doing. I had a coaching client a couple of weeks ago, not trying to roast this person. If they're listening, uh, I'm, I'm sure they know. One of my number one tactics in a coaching session is like, okay, why'd you do that? And like, I agree with it. Just let me know why. Tell me the thought process. And for the first time in all of my coaching, this guy was straight up like, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? like, give me a reason. Maybe it's a bad reason. Maybe we can disagree. Maybe we can talk about why your reason was flawed. But I mean, you cast the spell, didn't you? And he's just like, yeah, I don't know. Could not elaborate at all. And that's a problem. Uh, And that's what we ended up focusing on for the coaching session, helping him become more aware of the things he was doing and why. And it's just essential in any like intellectual pursuit, like deck building or playing this difficult game of ours.
1: Brian, I actually had a... pretty similar experience recently i was looking for a protection spell to remove an offer you can't refuse which was a card that everyone was testing but my experience with it just wasn't going well so i was like what about defense grid like every time someone plays silence against me it seems nuts because you can just win through a ristic study or a mystic remora for the reasons that you described earlier in this podcast i was like i want silence so why can't defense grid be good and i talked to some other cdh experts and I was told, like, well, it's not that good. Like, you play it and then you die. And I was like, well, you don't have to play it and pass the turn. So I started discussing it with some of these people. And they're like, you know what? We think you should try it. Conventional wisdom says it's not good. But, like, it makes sense with what you're saying. I tested it. Brian, it was bonkers. Uh, Colorless Silence is still really, really good. And it's just that no one had reevaluated it in the last couple of years.
2: Yeah, it feels a lot like uh, Teferi Time Reveler which is another card that is, uh, air quotes, bad in CEDH, because like Defense Grid, Teferi shuts down everybody on everybody else's turn. We've talked at length about how getting all four people involved in decisions and breaking up stacks and stuff is a big part of the, the format. And with Teferi in play, only you get to operate at instant speed, ruling out the other two people who could help you fend off the active player. And... In Legacy, like I love to Ferry as just like now or never with that counter spell. Here you go, like you're either going to spend it now or you didn't have it to begin with. And Defense Grid does that. You don't have to play it turn one and un- hope to untap turn two. You can just cast it and go off on turn three. To Ferry was more of a translation from legacy. Like, I I, I do actually think Teferi kind of sucks in CEDH, unlike Defense Grid, like, the extra mana and being in a color combo that isn't necessarily good at going fast. Like, Teferi's got a different set of problems, but the the way that it just now or never is the table is great, and maybe it just functions as Thoughtseize. Maybe you just sniff out the Force of Negation, and then, like, you can decide from there whether you want to keep going or, or rebuild next turn, or it just resolves and you win.
0: So one of my other critical observations of the format, and this is something I've talked about in many places already, is that I think people greed really, really hard on their mana bases. There's a lot of cute utility lands, Emergent Zone, I'm looking at you, that get thrown into deck lists kind of willy-nilly, and a lot of people are really skimping on lands, rationalizing that their one free mulligan allows them to kind of get a pass on that. So I encourage people who are getting into CEDH, or who are already in it, to pay attention to your mana base. Think about whether or not your lands are actually casting your spells on curve. You know, every time that you play a colorless mana rock, but you have, you know, a white-blue card to cast, that's not actually mana towards that. Think about how many times you're going to be able to cast your, like, turn one and two critical cards with the mana base you have um don't necessarily take that the mana bases that are in the primers are good food for thought and there's some excellent um frank karsten articles on channel fireball if you kind of want to get into some of the actual numbers there
2: Yeah, that was uh i'm talking to talk about rafine again but we're talking about our experience and that's been most of my experience lately i started rafine with sol ring mana crypt mana vault Grim Monolith, all these fast mana cards, Ancient Tomb, uh, all these, like the things that you put in CDH decks, air quotes, because they're good. And I slowly realized over actually playing games that my commander costs white, blue, black. Pip, pip, pip. None of that colorless mana is useful at all in getting my commander into play, which is what my deck is built on functioning around. And I am down to only the most powerful of them. I think it's just soul ring and mana crypt now. And I've moved into like, uh, uh, not signets. Uh, what are the other things? The talismans talismans. Yeah. I am on talismans now rather than soul ring or I'm still a soul ring because soul ring can cast talisman on turn one, but I'm on talismans instead of grim monoliths and mana vaults. Cause they just weren't casting the spells that I needed them to do. They were bad draws and they just sat in play. It's okay to adjust, raw power level things to what's what fits what you're actually doing and i look at the various cdh decks i have built some of them have 17 mana rocks i think rafine has like eight it's just we're doing a slower thing here and the deck is built to support that
0: and that's okay even though it looks weird all right so we should maybe try to end this episode by sharing some of the knowledge that we've gained And this may be a little too into the weeds for some of you who have never played the format, but um, maybe let's try to drop a little bit of knowledge on the CEDH folks who came out and gave the episode a listen.
1: One of the things that I found was that time and mana are actually the most valuable resources in the format and not card advantage. When I joined CDH. I heard a lot about card advantage in the command zone and how important that was, but that necessarily wasn't true for me. What I found was that mana was usually the indicator of who was going to win. So if Phil let off on mana crypt a soul ring, talisman, play my commander, Phil was likely going to win that game because Phil opened up on the best mana in the format. So I started focusing more on adding some of the better mana pieces to my deck. Uh, I mentioned ancient tomb and city of traders, that sort of thing. So That helped a lot. And another thing I realized is, while Phil likes dirty prison decks, a lot of other people like to have fun. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, love you, Phil. Uh, But there's a lot of wheels at the table. So Wheel of Fortune, Time Twister, those sort of things. And hands were reset a lot. So if your hand is going to be reset quite a bit, things that sit on the table like talismans that brian was just talking about have a lot of value and the fact that talismans allow you to break the one land per turn rule in commander or cdh i think is a really interesting aspect of the game so i I, i'm not sure where i'm going with this i I spoke about it earlier with those two but talismans are just so 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 valuable uh really can't speak highly enough about them that point
2: where a, an in-play resource lets you jump the land per turn resource acquisition rule of magic is really important because we talked about how a lot of these games don't go very many turns, but many things happen in a compact amount of time. The game may only go three turns. Do you want to end that game with the three mana sources in play, like land, 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 or do you want to stick something into play and be casting five drops by that point or casting a two drop and a one drop and protecting with two counter spells. I'm looking at Thassa's Oracle over there. Getting your mana set up is really important. And I'm going to shout out Dan again from Modanon, where Dan is a monster mulling to three or four and just not being happy until the hand explodes. Bryant was talking about uh, time and mana versus card advantage. Uh, I've seen Dan mull to three and it's just turn one Rhystic Study. I have fast mana. My hand will be refilled, or you guys are going to fart around playing around my mystic study and let me draw more cards just over time naturally. I've learned a lot from Dan that a hand of like land to land with Fluster Storm and uh, like one Signet and uh, maybe like a, an Enlightened Tutor or something, like that looks like a solid hand in Legacy. Like you all know me, Island Ponder Keep, that's my life. That does not fly in this format.
1: When I started, I started at 29 lands because I copied somebody else's deck list. Over the last five months, I went all the way down to 25, found that 25 wasn't the number, went back up to 26. But I'm very happy with 26 lands and an extra talisman or two in my deck. So yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of things that allow me to accelerate my game plan. Another thing that I thought was really interesting with talking with individuals is that speed and resiliency don't necessarily have to be opposite points of the spectrum they can be a singular path so there's cards that allow you to do this so for example and i thought that this was a pretty good discussion i had with somebody Brew trap and force of negation versus effects like miscast offer you can't refuse spell pierce dispel those sort of things Because one of them allows you to advance your game plan and tap out, and the other forces you to leave open mana. So naturally, something like Mind Break Trap or Force of Negation would actually allow you to play a faster, more proactive game plan, and they allow you to be a little bit more resilient, because sometimes somebody, you know, goes for it. The counter-argument is, well, you can't protect your own ad nauseum as well with the Force of Negation or a Mind Break Trap, but when you look at a table, your combo turn is 25%. There's three other people that are trying to win the game too. So mathematically, something like Force of Negation or Mindbrew Trap is active more often, especially when you have effects like Mystic Remora or Mystic Study. I think I might have mixed up those names there. But I thought that was just like a really interesting argument or discussion that we had. Just wanted to share that, that like speed doesn't have to be all mana. Speed can be cards like Deadly Rollick versus Slaughter Pact in the tempo on the game too.
2: Yeah. And on the, on the subject of tapping out and advancing your game plan, I played a lot of early games of like, I'm just going to hold up this fluster storm. I'll play off curve if I need to. And I just don't want to die out of nowhere. There's two other players that don't want to die either. Show confidence. If you're the only blue player at the table, maybe it's bad news and like you're in a bad spot anyway. Cause even if you fluster one, the other's going to win. I'm much more willing now to just tap out advance my board have something in play that'll help me next turn and when everyone's chilling on five to seven cards in hand I don't need to nuke my game plan just to see another turn most of the time
0: so I agree with most of what Bryant just said I, I think like fast mana is just absolutely one of the best indicators of like how well you are going to do that game but giving a slightly different perspective on the card advantage I do think that card advantage in the command zone is important Um, I have played two Commanders. I've played Marwyn and Heliod. And both of those are one card, not two, because of partner. And neither one of those innately drew cards. And, like, I very much feel that missing card advantage. And I very much feel the fact that I'm often down a card versus some of my um, opponents at the table. Um, Like, sometimes I kind of feel like my opponent's playing a companion and I'm not because they get that, like plus one card or like i don't just have the timna floating in the command zone to be a late game like way to recoup card advantage that's lost in the early game in playing out the fast mana so like without that card advantage sitting in the command zone like I've definitely felt some of my mid-games falter.
1: Do you feel at all that that's due to the colors that you have chosen? So those colors are mono green and mono white. While they do have some card advantage, they're not necessarily colors known for having a lot of card advantage.
0: Yes, um, I feel like I'm very dependent on drawing certain cards in my deck that are fantastic sources of card advantage. So like when the Marwyn deck draws cards, it draws 20, but there's not that trickle like there is in the blue deck. And with the Heliod deck, like I'm very reliant on drawing one of like the Augma, Esper Sentinel type cards um, that can give me that recurring advantage. Otherwise, it's kind of like vomit hate cards onto the sideboard and just kind of draw one card a turn and see what happens.
1: For sure. Yeah, we talked
2: about how a lot of the time there is that explosion of interaction and then the dust settles and you all look at each other. The people who can look at each other and cast Thrasios, or Krom, or uh, Timna—these commanders that just draw cards—I've uh, even felt it in Rafine. And even though that commander says draw cards on it, it also says discard cards. So I have run into pinch points where if I can't break the the parody of looting or conniving with Rafine by doing some graveyard synergy or having something like containment construct or like madness cards that let me cash out my discards. I also feel that that sputtering, like selection is not as good as advantage and selection is better than nothing in the command zone. I, I do feel pretty strongly, at least the the type of decks I played. My other deck that I haven't really mentioned, I talked about Ishai Jeska, I talked about Rafine. My other one is Teshar, just mono-white, Quarkland-Ironworks combo. That does not, well, Teshar is kind of card advantage, but not in the draw card sense. It's in the, I- cast a thing that's already in my hand and then it interacts with something that is in my graveyard somehow from earlier in the game uh, so building for speed like a rock silas versus building for a late game like Tim or splitting the difference with a rafine uh it's all just deck building decision and nobody's wrong it's just make sure you know what your deck's trying to do you don't want to end up confused about it
1: One discussion point that I've thought is pretty interesting is similar strategies are not always one-to-one. Brian has mentioned that he has a combo list and then a prison list with Rafine. While the Commander is the same, the decks are vastly different. So when talking with people, you'll say, hey, I faced a Heliod deck before in Commander. And people just assume that the decks are really similar, but sometimes there's a pretty big difference. When I've compared my own deck in Moxfield, because I've mentioned that's one thing that I love to do. I love looking at other people's deck lists, comparing it to mine. The fewest number of differences I've seen in any deck list is 16. When you compare that to a Legacy deck, that would be a Legacy deck with a 12 card difference. And to put that into perspective, it's the large, is it Merc Tider, is it Delver deck versus the Delverless deck. You know, those are grouped together as one archetype. But in reality, they're pretty different at this stage in the game. So while they are, you know, the same archetype, I don't know. Like, they're not necessarily one-to-one. And cards aren't always the same. Like, for example, the Delver builds only play one or two Mishra's Bobble, where the Delver List builds get to play four. And that has an impact on how fast you can get Marktide Regent into play. So the play patterns are also different. So to compare that to Legacy, I just want to say that just because you faced a commander before doesn't mean that this other person's list is similar and that you should discuss cards in them with respects to the other cards in the deck.
0: Yeah. And I think to use a more extreme legacy example, this is the difference between the low to the ground moon stompy deck list with like rabble Masters and Legion War bosses and a like Red Prison deck list that is playing like Ensnaring Bridges and Planeswalkers. Even though they share largely the same core, the same mana acceleration, the same lock pieces. Those are entirely different decks and you need to play against them differently. So just kind of keep that in mind, like commander pairing does not necessarily equal everything is what you are going to expect it to be.
2: Yeah, and changing 12 cards in a 60 card legacy deck, that's one fifth of the deck or more than that, right? I think I just did the math to 70 cards instead of 60 cards. Yeah, a fifth. Yeah, Okay, it is a fifth. Yeah, uh, that's a lot of cards uh 12 cards could be three play sets like three totally different cards legacy decks don't get that many slots cards are are powerful like the bars high to clear if you're cutting 12 cards from your legacy deck for different cards that becomes a different thing uh, i can't think of a legacy deck where you just cut 12 cards for 12 different cards and your deck's the same like maybe the overall strategy like you're still an uro deck or whatever but like it's gonna it's going to change something at a fundamental level so if you're if you're looking at like rock silas versus rock silas but 16 cards are different
0: that's a different deck all right gentlemen do we have any closing thoughts here about cedh for our listeners
1: the format is sweet get out and play it
0: yeah
2: I, i agree um i'm gonna expand that to just commander in general uh i i've talked about like in in like little bits and pieces over the last year and a half, two years on the pod that I've slowly gotten back into commander. But I genuinely think that commander at an agreeable power level, no matter what the power level is, is awesome. I have four pre-constructed decks just right out of the box, sleeved up so I can have a comparable power level game with people. I have a number of CEDH decks and I have a bunch of things in the middle. And anytime you're, you're having fun and everybody's on the same page it's going to be a good time playing commander and cedh just shortcuts a lot of those conversations
0: i think the final thing i want our listeners to know since so many of them are going to be legacy players who haven't played this format before is this format is so proxy friendly when i decided i wanted to get into cedh the first thing i did was buy a nice printer and like i have printed off two deck lists so far like i intend to print off more to kind of try out a bunch of things Um, like, you don't necessarily have to go out and buy all of these expensive cards to try out this, this format. And even some of the tournaments that are being offered because they are not officially sanctioned tournaments allow the use of proxies. Not all of them, but some of them. So keep that in mind. Like, first taste is free.
2: Absolutely. The players of this format want to play against the best decks. They don't want to play against your bank account. So just boot up your printer, jump in.